Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dewhop. Dewhop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldenza, hoping everyone had a restful, long weekend without major weather problems. Winter is often tough on travel, and this winter is off to a stormy start. Are you warm and dry, Scott McCartney? Ben Baldanza, I'm freezing here in Texas, and I'll be following the cold into North Carolina. So I'm looking forward to warmer temperatures someday, and I'm looking forward to talking to John Ostrower about the chilling aviation problems we've had this month. John is as knowledgeable as anyone on Boeing, Airbus, and aviation safety. He'll give us a great perspective on the fiasco that is Boeing right now and what it needs to do to fix the very serious problems there. Well, I'm looking forward to talking with John and hearing what he thinks needs to change. Speaking of change, we had some news at JetBlue this week, perhaps overshadowed by all the 737 MAX news. You sure did, Ben. JetBlue Chief Executive Robin Hayes announced he would step down in February, citing health concerns, and it seems a fair amount of burnout. Joanna Garrity, the airline's president and chief operating officer, will step up as CEO. It's an exciting change because Joanna will become the first woman to have the top job at a major U.S. airline. Joanna is as smart as they come and as knowledgeable as anyone about running the airline. She came up through the legal side, as several airline CEOs have, and has run the people department as well as customer experience. She has broad experience with employees, with customers, with operations, and other important areas like revenue management. She is well-prepared, but will face big challenges navigating plan A with the spirit merger, or perhaps plan B, or maybe it's going to be plan C. We don't know yet. She faces the big challenge of running an airline with operations so focused on New York and Florida, both areas where the FAA has serious air traffic controller shortages and bottlenecks. That's all more than enough, but she also faces the challenge of being a medium-sized airline in a business now dominated by four large carriers. The good news, Joanna, is that you're the CEO. The bad news, perhaps, is that you're a CEO in the airline business. Just kidding, Ben. That's all right, Scott. I have great confidence in Joanna. And I know everyone at JetBlue thinks she's right for the job. 
I look forward to her leadership through what's going to be a very interesting year for the airline. Absolutely. And I look forward to having her on the podcast and talking to her about it and also talking to Robin. I've always enjoyed talking to Robin, and I think it'll be interesting to get his perspective when we can have him on. Ben, we've entered into earnings season, and Delta was the first out of the gate, as usual, with what I think will be a story we'll hear repeatedly this month. Delta doubled its fourth quarter profit from a year ago to $2 billion. Well done and said revenue was up 6% in the final three months of the year. For the full year, Delta earned $4.6 billion, and revenue was up 15% compared to 2022. You'll recall Delta had a big loss in the first quarter with about half a billion dollars in one-time charges, including costs from a new pilot contract. In the most recent quarter, Delta said a record number of people paid to sit in higher-priced cabins, and the airline benefited from strong demand for international travel. Demand remains strong, Delta said. People really want to travel. And CEO Ed Bastian doesn't think the thirst for international travel is quenched. Indeed, Delta ordered 20 A350-1000s from Airbus for long-haul international service. That's the good news. The bad news is they are in the airline business. Just kidding again. Delta said higher costs in 2024 will crimp earnings, and the airline trimmed its forecast for profits in the current year. Wall Street didn't like that, and Delta stock ended Friday 9% lower. So congratulations on a strong 2023. What have you done for me lately? Good luck on 2024. And I think that's a song we're going to sing frequently as we hear more airlines report results in the next couple of weeks. We better learn those car changes yeah. because you're right. Higher costs from fuel, labor, and everywhere are going to hurt airlines. And Ed Bastion is right about international strength, but it's unclear if that's going to repeat in 2024. So lots to look forward to, and it'll be interesting as we hear what American and United say about their view of the year we're in now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think, hey, we're having strong demand, And yet we're going to have weaker earnings uh, next year. And a lot of that is going to be the higher costs that they face. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without our sponsors. We want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, from lower costs, and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit Duhop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. 
For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Ben, the investigations continue into the runway collision in Tokyo and the successful evacuation there from a fiery wide-body airplane, plus the Alaska Airlines 737 MAX 9 door plug failure. In addition to the NTSB investigation into the MAX 9 depressurization at 16,000 feet, the FAA announced it was investigating Boeing and its supplier Spirit Aerosystems, which, by the way, has no relation to Spirit Airlines. There's a lot to learn from all this, and let's start the learning by bringing in today's special guest. John Ostrower is a veteran aviation reporter and founder of The Air Current, a must-read news site for anyone interested in airplanes and airlines. Prior to launching The Air Current in 2018, John was aviation editor for CNN Worldwide, and before that, he was the aerospace beat reporter at The Wall Street Journal, where he and I overlapped for a while. He's been breaking news on both the Japan runway accident and the 737 MAX 9 door plug failure, and he joins us from Seattle. John, let's begin with the JAL runway collision in Tokyo. I think we can all say that the crash successfully demonstrated decades of work and great achievements in fire retardant materials and aircraft design, strength of carbon fiber airplanes, and the overall crash survivability. Everyone on board the A350 got out alive, but the last crew member left the burning aircraft 18 minutes after touchdown. So is the evacuation a massive success, or is it a major concern because it took so many minutes? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. Uh, that, that's probably the best place to, to start. I, I, I love Airlines Confidential, and it's my a weekly uh, listen for, for me as a, as a consumer of all things aviation news and commentary. I think you're asking the right question, but I think what we're really getting to here is the idea of the real world variability that comes with these types of situations. When you have people who are scared, who are panicked, who are have just been through a phenomenally traumatic event in a, an environment which is totally variable against a regulatory framework for saying you need to be able to get out of an airplane, a fully evacuate an airplane within 90 seconds. And I think it's those two things that are working together that are going to kind of shape the discussion around what evacuation requirements need to be, what are their criteria, what are the standards, how do you normalize them, and how do you account for the this incredible variability that goes on in a, in a situation that is inherently hard to predict. And so in the case of, of JAL, I think by, you know, 18 minutes after the initial accident, the last uh, crew member left the aircraft. And so what that says is that all of the other things also worked, right? You had uh, the levels of, of redundancy in the aircraft systems, in the structures, in fire retardants, fire prevention, evacuation technology uh, to all work together. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's very easy to just point to sort of one thing that went right that made it all made all the difference. But it was all of the things together that was again the accumulated knowledge and experience 
and hard won lessons in aviation safety that really kind of came together to kind of pull the the ultimate outcome to where it is, where you can be in a burning A350 for 18 minutes and have every single person be able to to get out safely. The evacuation started officially uh, after about six minutes after the crash, hmm. uh, once the flight attendants established which doors were working uh, and which exits were were safe for actually getting out. And actually within uh, about that kind of sort of 90 second window, the vast majority of people were off that airplane. Huh. And so then you end up with a, a lot of, you know, again, the real world variability of people who are scared and people who are, need need additional help getting out. I've always thought the 92nd standard was for test cases, right? In the real world, it's going to take longer. But if you if you force 90 seconds in a perfect environment, you create the conditions where everybody can get out. And for the last decade in crashes that were survivable, everybody did get out. Would, would you lean towards the, the idea that this was a major uh, success um, uh, and that the standard is working? On the whole, I would say that the 90 seconds is a good baseline. However, what we also have seen is that, again, there are, there are multiple ways to show compliance with that. You either have, uh, you show by analysis, you show by partial demonstration or full-scale demonstration. And notably, uh, in the full-scale demonstrations are incredibly, incredibly rare. They're usually done for, for brand new aircraft alone. However, in the case of like the 787, for example, and the A350, uh, only partial uh, evacuation tests were done and a lot of analysis was done based on the fact that there were other airplanes that were that same size that had been uh, in service before and you could use that as a baseline for comparison. You know, Congress has been pushing for a long time and uh, the flight attendants union as well, really the idea that it's not necessarily representative because Everything was sort of perfect in the in the JAL instance. No one grabbed their bags. And what we've seen, particularly in the US and other other incidents involving uh, large groups of Western passengers who who have not done that, who have openly disregarded uh, flight attendant instructions to leave bags. The the American 383 uh, incident at O'Hare back in uh, either 2015 or 2016 openly described uh, in the NTSB investigation passengers who brought stuff with them as they were exiting the airplane and it slowed things down and they mm. called for an NTSB special recommendation um, around safety. And so what we actually, the reporting that we that we had uh, last week, which was really new, was that FAA is aware of this and they're concerned about it and they're responding to the NTSB's safety recommendation and actually working up criteria by which to actually begin to evaluate more accurately these real world conditions, that sort of chaotic variability in that 90 second consideration. I mean, there has to be some baseline standard for everyone to follow. So where does 90 seconds come from? No one can give you a straight answer on that because no one really knows what where that number was created. However, I think it tends to be a, a good guide for the rigor of saying, this is how quickly it has to happen. Let's work within the real world conditions to see if that is still a realistic standard. Mm -hmm. You know, my sense, John, is that 
90 seconds in idealized situations almost implies that a real-world event will not happen that quickly, but should happen quicker without the standard. Yeah, and, and I think it and also it's important, obviously, the 90 seconds is from the moment the evacuation is triggered, right? I mean, we have, we have uh, you know, is it from the moment of, of the accident and then that's the point? Or from the point of of when the evacuation actually activates and there's the, there's the half of the exits have to be um, disabled or unavailable to passengers and they don't know which ones are or are not in, a, in an evacuation test. But yeah, I mean, the you know, an, an idealized situation doesn't necessarily serve the overall, the overall purpose, but I think um, it's very interesting to, and important to continue to begin to take into the chaos as a major factor here uh, in whether or not that that is still ultimately achievable. And there's a lot of things that are happening on sort of the aircraft technology certification development side over the years to allow that 90 seconds to not have to be 90 seconds, but still beat the 90 seconds. So, John, I know it's early, but what do you think we're going to learn from this and what could change as a result? That's a great question. I think one of the things that I think we should be watching for is ultimately airport infrastructure is a, is a really important piece here. Uh, ground-based radar, knowing where airplanes are and where they should be or shouldn't be at any, any given moment, I think is going to be increasingly in the spotlight. When you kind of step back from everything that happened in Japan, a lot of that, by sheer geographical coincidence, was a manifestation of a lot of the same issues that have been warned about in the U.S. over the last 24, 36 months through and coming out of the pandemic, where you've got a system that's too stressed, you have you have understaffing, you have technology that's not ready to handle the volume of aircraft that are operating, you have a lot of different factors at, at play here where you've got a, what safety experts in the U S have been worried about for a long time happening on a runway in Japan. And I think that taking that as it a really important warning, just because it's happening on, on the other side of the world, doesn't mean it's not incredibly applicable to what we're seeing in, uh, in the U S right now in North America, in terms of infrastructure and the ability to, to, to have air traffic control, manage that workload and be aware, situationally aware of where all the aircraft are, particularly in, 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 a, in a ground environment where we absolutely know that this is a possibility and can happen and has happened. So it's, I think that's going to be a really important uh, lesson for, for everyone to learn here. Very interesting. Let's, let's turn to the Alaska Airlines MAX 9 scare. Do you think loose bolts are going to turn out to be the culprit or are there other possibilities and factors here? I think that is the central question that the NTSB is trying to answer. Obviously, there's been a tremendous amount of, of scrutiny within, uh, within the, the aviation regulatory community already on Boeing, given the max grounding of, of 2019 and 2020, given the two crashes in Ethiopia and uh, Indonesia. And so I think that understanding 
whether or not the loose bolts or understanding how the, the failure occurred is again, the central question. I, and that is, I, and I, I can't sit here and tell you that I think that the, those are that ultimately can be the culprit or not the culprit, but obviously it is an incredibly important measurement right now of, of how investigators are thinking about what they look at next and how they establish the probable cause for what actually caused this. Um, but fundamentally what we've now seen is that as Alaska and United have moved deeper into their sort of either official or unofficial inspections of their aircraft, that they're turning up discrepant parts and bolts within these, these plug doors that are on uh, their aircraft, then that begins to open up a can of worms or continue to build on a can of worms that, that Boeing has been grappling with around quality from uh, its own factories and its suppliers that do this work for them. Well, it seems to me this is complicated by the fact that you have Spirit Aerospace as the manufacturer, Boeing as the assembler, and Alaska as the operator. So let's talk about them. What do you think of their crisis response? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's hard to find in this industry a sort of continuum of companies that are closer than those three. I mean, Alaska and Boeing, arguably, and, the, and the, this is perfectly open for debate, but given the the current posture of, of Boeing, given how it views the world, given everything that they've been through with the airlines over the last five, 10 years, Boeing and Alaska are the closest pair in all of OEM and airline pairings, even more so than Southwest. On the wide body side, you can definitely point to United uh, for sure with, with Boeing on that as well. Spirit is Boeing's most important supplier. Nothing Boeing can do can be done without Spirit. And by the way, Spirit cannot survive without Boeing. Spirit used to be Boeing, and it was spun off in 2005 as a uh, the units of uh, Boeing's fabrication div- uh, manufacturing divisions in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And in doing so, it created Spirit. And Spirit went out and got more work from Airbus and other and other companies and defense work to allow them to be a more diversified company. But Still, the vast majority, overwhelming majority of their revenue comes from Boeing. And Spirit has life of program contracts for, uh, you know, for any, everything from the 747 when it was in production all the way through the 787 and the 777X. And so the 737 and the 737 MAX have been Spirit's bread and butter and are, again, so central to their existence and their survival. So these two are inextricably linked. We're coming off of a year where Spirit has been grappling with quality issues inside of its factories. So so severe, in fact, that Boeing had to stop deliveries of uh, new Maxes on two specific occasions last year because of quality findings that prompted them to require inspections and rework of those airplanes before they were delivered. We had just kind of gotten through that last one which was uh, a series of misdrilled holes on the aft pressure bulkheads 
of 737 MAX 8 aircraft. It ultimately, that crisis caused their CEO, Tom Gentile, in September to, to resign. And Pat Shanahan, who is a longtime uh, Boeing veteran who retired uh, to join the Trump administration as deputy secretary of defense, is now running Spirit Aerosystems. Shanahan has enormous experience in the factory and actually ran the, the 757 program and, and was a, uh, a really important deputy of uh, leaders at Boeing who were um, involved in the 737 program, running the 737 program. And so he, for a time, was the head of airplane programs for Boeing. He worked on actually running the 787 program during some of its most troubled periods in 2007. And so he knows Boeing and knows how to right the ship. He is kind of Boeing's Mr. Fix-It. And that is his remit. He has been said, I'm going to be there for one year to get this right and, and get it going. I think all of this resurfaces the trauma and the trouble of last year again. But again, last year was the manifestation of years of also the tumult between Boeing and Spirit. I mean, we, we, we say that they're interconnected and they're interdependent on one another, but it's also a very, at times, adversarial relationship between the two. Because, again, Boeing wants Spirit to be successful, but not too successful, because that means that they're paying them too much. And so there's this back and forth of uh, of sort of strategic tension that exists in the relationship. And they, at various times, have have sued each other. Um, and and it's been really acrimonious, been been very, very challenging relationship. And Shanahan coming on as CEO was was in many ways viewed as a, as a potential turning point or opportunity for a turning point here. So again, it sort of dredges up a lot of the, the those those lingering, longstanding feelings of frustration where Boeing can't get to deliver airplanes to its customers if Spirit can't deliver a product that that meets the quality of its expectations. I think it's really important to point out that. It's very easy to sort of, oh, well, you know, did Spirit do something wrong or did Boeing do something wrong? When you obviously are building an airplane of this complexity, there are quality checks that take place at Spirit and there are quality checks that take place at Boeing. And there are instances where, where Boeing in normal course of, of, of business will find something from Spirit and they'll fix it. And so both hold responsibility for ensuring that uh, the, the quality of, of their workmanship is is delivered to spec you know, look, there are millions of parts on an airplane. And so one goes through the factory and there's always variability. There's, you know, tool marks, you know, loose items, whatever. But as long as they're fixed before delivery and when the FAA tickets that airplane, fair enough, right? That's that's just part of the the the, the natural variability and, and chaos and, and, you know, how a factory works when you're building a, pro- a product like this. But it's important that quality systems are catching these. And if they are caught on the, on the ground, you either say, hey, well, we're going to fix them, uh, however many airplanes are affected. Uh, this one got past the, the last level of Swiss cheese. And we had this, this incident aboard the Alaska Airlines flight. And by coincidence and miracle, whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use, no one was sitting in those seats. And the airplane wasn't higher. And so there are a lot... A lot went right. And I think we're 
able to talk about the outcome of that that accident in a much different context than if had someone been seriously physically injured uh, or 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 God forbid killed in what his what is clearly you know the most significant safety incident aboard a a U.S. commercial aircraft since uh, the Southwest uh, engine failure back in um, uh, 2016. And and with all that. Um, so many big questions at, at Boeing, right? Um, hiding the software change that led to the two fatal MAX crashes, the move from intense engineering focus to more cost control focus after the McDonnell Douglas merger, um, moving the headquarters now twice, uh, moving 787 production to non-union South Carolina, that the Max 7 and the Max 10 haven't been certified. The new version of the 777 is way behind schedule. Tell us, uh, and, and and we've talked, Ben and I have talked before about the need for Boeing to move off the, the 1960s 737 airframe and, and really get going on a new single aisle airplane. Um, you mentioned Pat Shanahan as the fix-it man at Spirit, but Dave Calhoun was supposed to be the fix-it man at Boeing. Um, do you think he's failed? I think Boeing's strategy has not changed. And it hasn't changed for the last probably decade or longer. Actually, definitely decade, probably more like two decades. You know, their their goal is to deliver as many airplanes as they can from as many orders as, as they can take in and generate the free cash flows accordingly to return them to investors. That is a stated goal of, of, of the Boeing company when it comes to its investor relations and as far as their goals. There is a very clear recurring pattern here of, of things that are, are happening over and over and over again, where Boeing tries to adjust itself to have a, a different outcome, whether it's manufacturing quality, safety, and this keeps recurring. And so while there are absolutely tactical things that Boeing is putting into place that are trying to catch these issues and making sure there's correct oversight and experience and and, and that mitigation is in place, I think the bigger questions that I've, in the conversations that I've had with senior leaders at airlines and, and, um, and other uh, major industrial players in this industry are effectively looking at the strategy question is whether or not the strategy is being executed in a way that gets Boeing where they want to go. And right now you can safely say after, again, you know, all the challenges of the, of, of the eight, seven development, the grounding of that airplane, the max issues, the triple seven X, the, the right, the, the changes in regulatory posture where they're at right now, their strategy is seemingly not matching the environment that they are in. And I think that's going to be something that that is going to have to be closely examined as far as whether or not Boeing acknowledges that or accepts accepts that and whether or not they do anything about it going forward. That's a big statement. So at least as it matters for commercial aircraft, what do you think is the future for Boeing? That is something I spend a lot of time thinking about. I've spent, you know, 15 years covering this company and want trying to understand how they make decisions and what where they go go forward. And 
there's always been a recurring theme of what people on the outside and men, actually many on the inside think they should do and what they actually do. And, you know, there have been folks who have been pushing for uh, an all new clean sheet airplane for, for, a, for a long time, uh, particularly on, on whether it's either a midsize airplane, something around the A321 to 757, uh, 200, 300 sized airplane, or, you know, uh, you know, your, your bread and butter, 180 seat, 160 seat, 737-800 replacement. And from a performance perspective, the MAX is a very good airplane. It delivers the fuel efficiency that in economics that airlines expect. And so there's a an urge to not break that continuity because you have a huge established base out there. You have customers who are ordering the airplane in, in huge numbers. And if you were to field an all new airplane today, based on the technology that is available, it wouldn't be that much better than the max. And so it's, you're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place because the amount of money you have to spend to completely redo your production system and introduce a new airplane and break continuity among just the infrastructure that's been around for so long is phenomenally disruptive. So they've opted to, to hold on to the status quo. The question then becomes is, is the system overstretched in terms of, and this again goes back to the questions around, around the max, uh, around whether or not the ecosystem that exists to field the airplane is operating properly. And certainly the quality system is having issues right now. We're seeing, we're seeing that in terms of the, the findings that Alaskan United for this latest incident. And so that's really the, the, the central question about, about, you know, where do they go from here? Certainly they have to get through this incident. And I think, you know, look, taking a really long-term historical view on this, you know, we look at the DC-10 grounding back in 1979 after the uh, terrible crash in Chicago, which at the time was the, was the wor- most, most fatal air disaster in U.S. history. And that airplane was grounded and then it came back. And they're largely speaking that happened, that the grounding happened and the airplane came back and, and more or less uh, things went back to normal. The risk in that was not that the initial grounding would damage the reputation of McDonnell Douglas. It was the risk of something additional that was either related to the airplane or unrelated to the airplane would happen later on that would reinforce the thinking or the emotional reasoning behind that grounding, which would somehow cement this idea that something was really wrong with the airplane. And that's always been the risk for Boeing reputationally coming through the, through, uh, the, the max grounding. And now we, here we are certainly the most serious safety crisis facing the airplane and Boeing since that event. So now here we are. And I think it, again, it's the things that I'm watching for are airline response, certainly where it's a duopoly. So there aren't a lot of op- other options, but how do how do uh, stakeholders in this industry, whether it's the U.S. government, uh, whether it's the you know whether it's the White House, Congress, begin to think about what Boeing does next and how they help them do that? And by the way, they have been. You know, when the WTO case was uh, formally resolved several years ago between the U.S. And, and Europe about about funding for aerospace industries, money just completely flooded into both of those. Absolutely huge gush of cash went went into Europe and went into. Uh, U.S. industry to begin to look at what the next technologies would be. 
you know, right now we are in the homework years for this industry to figure out what those next new big leap technologies are. And the and suppliers and government are right now are footing a chunk of that bill to do that R&D to help it along. And that's a stated policy goal of NASA and the Biden administration at the moment. Getting that to line up with Boeing's strategy in terms of their necessity, willingness, readiness to go do a new airplane of really any size is going to be where the mismatch happens and how that gets reconciled. That will only change with a different leadership of this company. And they have to adjust that strategy to accelerate that process because right now the current posture of the company is to say Boeing advances with the research that and the pace that research, that research is unfolding. They're flying what's called the X66, which is a, a transonic trust braced wing uh, sustainable flight demonstrator. It's a, it's a, quite a mouthful, but effectively it's a, it's a, a, a test airplane with, with a modified, very long, slender, almost glider like wing supported by, by trusses to demonstrate that you can get maybe eight, nine, 10% efficiency improvement with that configuration. And they're doing a full scale airliner demonstration in 2028. That's still four years away. That's, that's a ways away, uh, to get that validation to give them the confidence to, that they know whether or not this is going to work in service. If in fact, this is the, the, the chosen path. Airbus has their own demonstrations around wings and so on and so forth. But again, I think what, you know, Ben, fundamentally what, what you're getting to is this, this tension here about how best to proceed. But fundamentally, the strategy that Boeing has in place right now will not allow them to significantly change path on, on product development. And ultimately, what many think would be a re-energizing of the engineering organization, the supply chain, the U.S. industry, and but and ultimately, what would be a very disruptive, and I say that positively, uh, effect on, on on the airlines to say, okay, now it's time to think differently about your single aisle aircraft. So it's the one to watch, and whether or not this event changes that, whether whether it's leadership or strategy, is certainly the, the a huge question that that we're going to have to be watching for. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fascinating to see if if Boeing can can morph into sort of a a new effective innovative uh, aerospace company or or if it's um you know going to be stuck behind like a, a whole litany of major US industry that uh, that didn't innovate and and, uh, and suffered and lost the market because of that. John, it's been great having you Really appreciate you taking the time. We look forward to a lot more news from the Air Current. Tell people where they can find the Air Current and and uh, a little bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you can find us uh, at uh, theaircurrent.com, theaircurrent.com. So you, you need the T-H-E at the very beginning. And uh, we are a subscription publication. We have no advertisers very deliberately. It's a strategic choice to make sure that we are speaking directly to our readers and we can do the best possible uh, journalism that focuses on depth and insight and gets past sort of a lot of the, the problems and uh, business model challenges that a lot of a lot of uh, the modern modern media has. So we've taken a different approach to, to the air current to, to give our readers the depth. Uh, that they need. And uh, we would love to have you as a subscriber. And, um, you know, ultimately, that's what makes what we do possible. Thank you. 
That's great. Well, I I am a subscriber and I love it and uh, really encourage people to um, uh, to subscribe because uh, you you perform a great service and it's uh, it's really important and I've loved your reporting for for many years. Thanks for being with us, John, and uh, we'll be watching for more. My pleasure. Thanks, gentlemen. Promotional consideration provided by the Archive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard. The Archive.net. Thanks again to John for helping us better understand the important detail of these two accidents and some of the past and future for the Boeing company. Ben, let's open the mailbag this week with a comment from JP from Chicago. This message is for Scott, JP says. Scott, you've given your full-throated endorsement to the JetBlue Spirit merger, saying it would be great for consumers. Which ones? The wealthy ones? The ones traveling on business? Sure. What about those passengers who have limited means to travel and without low fares can't travel? What about the people of La Trobe who depend on Spirit to get to Florida or the people working at the airport? They've reached out to JetBlue for assurances that service will continue uninterrupted, but they haven't gotten it. If I were you, I would be supporting Spirit buying JetBlue instead of the other way around. I hope the judge in the case is thinking the same. As a consumer, it's what I want. Well, JP, we expect to know soon what the judge is thinking. And the point you raise is the big concern, fewer low fares for consumers. The judge may well agree with you. Personally, I think you're pining for something that just isn't sustainable. In the first nine months of 2023, Spirit had net losses of nearly $264 million, and it is expected to have lost money in the fourth quarter, making the total losses for the year even bigger. In 2022, Spirit had losses of $554 million, more than a half a billion dollars. In 2021, Spirit had losses of $473 million. Should I go on? Cheap fares aren't sustainable if a company can't earn profits. And Spirit in the last three years has lost more than a billion, maybe a billion and a half dollars. Yes, it's good for you when the airline creditors and investors are subsidizing your ticket, but that just can't last. Likewise, if Latrobe is a good idea and an airline can fly there profitably, you would think either JetBlue Spirit, whichever, however that ends up, would continue or another airline would swoop in if JetBlue Spirit pulls out. If there are passengers, planes will come. But if there aren't enough passengers to make it work, people in Latrobe will have to drive to Pittsburgh. It's only about an hour away. You know, Scott, Latrobe has been a good market for Spirit. So who knows what will happen if the merger goes through. But your point about making money is right on. Yeah, I you know, for different cycles in the business, I, uh, there have been lots of times when airlines lose money. That's what they do. Um, and it's great for travelers because uh, fares are really cheap. But they also don't want the planes duct taped together. They don't want 
the employees angry because they haven't had a raise in five years. And it, it, it becomes very difficult. Um, there are trade-offs. And, and I think just like any business, if you can't cover your costs and, and earn some money, you're not going to be able to buy new airplanes. You're not going to be able to do lots of things. And you're going to run out of money because they just can't print it. Uh, and so it, this, is, this is a major problem that the low-cost sector faces right now. Okay, Ben, here's a related question from Caleb in St. Louis. Good day from St. Louis, Ben and Scott. I hope all is well with you both post-holiday season. I've been thinking a lot about the recent revenue troubles ultra-low-cost carriers like Frontier and Spirit have been running into. And I'm finding that there are some really interesting dynamics at play right now in the industry. As you are aware, Andrew Nosella, the chief commercial officer of United, talked in the third quarter earnings presentation about why he and his colleagues believe that the ultra-low-cost carrier market is, quote, doomed, quote. His discussion points focus mainly on high labor costs and increased competition as the big four flood traditional ULCC bread-and-butter leisure markets with seats on larger aircraft. He points to the upgaging that has occurred in recent years as the legacies look to get rid of inefficient regional jets with higher per-unit costs. I want to offer a passenger perspective as to why ULCCs may have struggled using the concept of value-added cost, a term I learned from Gordon Bethune's book, From Worst to First. Labor and fuel costs have been high over the past two years, causing fares to rise. ULCCs are passing these costs over to their customers in the form of more restrictive baggage rules and higher ancillary fees. The problem with this is that the ULCCs are notorious for bare-bones service. As a passenger, what value added, besides being able to check or carry on a bag, am I receiving when paying more for a ULCC ticket? The seat is still small and uncomfortable. There's no IFE, and all food and beverages served on board come with a charge. In years past, this wouldn't be an issue as the next cheapest fare after the ULCC was likely a pricey legacy ticket. But this isn't really the case anymore. The big four have thus far been able to manage their costs and keep fares semi-low, closing the fare differential between the full-service carriers and the ULCCs. I've seen Frontier with fares with ancillaries more expensive than Southwest. Others have reported that United Economy Plus is cheaper than some Frontier fares. As a passenger, what value am I receiving paying full-service airline fares but receiving ULCC service? While I disagree that the ULCC market is doomed, I do think it's time for a refresh. Ben and Scott, it appears that the ULCC market may need to change in the coming years to either cut costs or bring more value in the soft and hard products to justify higher fares. What changes do you think should be on their horizons? Ben, if you were in charge of a ULCC today, what changes would you impose? They're great questions, Ben. Clearly, the big guys aren't spilling as much traffic to the ULCCs. What do you think they need to do? Well, Scott, there's a lot here. First, the cost advantage that the ULCCs have 
is not only labor, it's many other things. So they need to keep focusing on that. The refresh has already started. Spirit is offering Wi-Fi, for example, now. So in the end, it's a capacity game. The big guys don't want to carry as many cheap fares, but they'll do it as long as business travel is weak. So the question is, are we in a world that is permanently changed or is more higher price traffic coming back, leaving space for more ULCCs? It's a really interesting point, Ben. I'm not sure I've really thought about the business travel change uh, in in that perspective. Yes, the loss of business travelers has hurt the big guys, um, but look at how quickly they've adapted, right? They, they've moved their route networks into uh, areas where they can carry more leisure passengers, and they've offered products where leisure passengers are paying up so that they're more like higher fare business customers. And meanwhile, that the, the nobody sort of looked at the loss of business travel as something that would hurt the ULCCs, but that's that's what's happening. And as you say, the the loss of of business travel, um, and and that being the problem for Spirit and Frontier, um, that's kind of a fascinating way to look at what's happened. Um, but I think you're you're spot on. It's exactly right. And what's making even smaller airlines more competitive today is if they have some market for a nicer product like Alaska does or JetBlue does, Mm -hmm. which Spirit and Frontier don't. So the question is, Will the ULCCs be able to live with only low fares forever? Yeah. Well, fascinating question, and uh, and uh, I think we'll start to get some answers um, when we hear from the judge in Boston about the JetBlue Spirit merger. That's really going to impact um, the future of the airline industry in this country. It would make a great PhD dissertation. Absolutely, Professor. <laughs> so anyone at MIT or somewhere, think about this. Fascinating. That would be fun. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of Airlines Confidential. We'll be back next week with much more, and I hope, warmer temperatures. So long, everybody. And stay warm. See you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.